Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with uh, Helen Avery, Mark Trike from Cellar Door Wine Tours. We're here at Nicholson Library in Linfield College. It's December 5th, 2019. Thank you both for joining us today. We do appreciate this. Uh, let's start with uh, kind of the basic question, which is why wine tours, I guess, in your case? What got wine you into wine tours? Wine tours. tours. Mm, well, it starts with, uh, well, I guess for me, I started off, um, you know, our stories come together at a, at a a juncture in time, but um, I started off in the restaurant industry, um, working as a waitress right out of college. Uh, I have a degree in communications from the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I'm from Colorado, and uh, moved here to the Portland area in 1999. No, 97. 97. 97. Yeah. <laughs> I started dating. I know, it's dating me. <laughs> 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 and um, yeah, we started dating in 99. And I was the general manager at the TGI Fridays in, Port in the right. Washington Square Mall, which is no longer there. Yeah, that franchise went away. <laughs> but um, he was a beer salesman at Widmer Brothers Brewing Company. So he was our on-premise beer salesman while I was the general manager at the restaurant. And that's how we ultimately met. Right. So hospitality and food and beverage has always been my background. And Yeah, my background was always, well, um, it was, wasn't beer sales right away, but that's how we met. Mm -hmm. It wasn't beer sales. Um, and when I first moved down here, I guess it's... Um, well, for me, why wine was what really intrigued me. Mm -hmm. I use it a lot, um, but I use it a lot in our tours, um, asking people what their experience is. What was their first experience that made them realize that wine was a viable option for them? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so for me, it started in college, because I have a degree in geography, and I'm always into geography and out there, and I've always liked the geography of wine. Mm -hmm. um, not so much old world, but but what was in my backyard um, when I went to Central Washington University and he had the Yakima Valley just down the street, mm -hmm. 30 minutes away. And uh, um, I did a, a paper in college in my social geography class and I decided to do it on the, the wine mm -hmm. um, that was grown in our area. And so for research, I had to go down and buy wine and research wine. And so um, there was no Psalms in our world at that time. There was no restaurants worthy of any wine. So I had to go to the Safeway store or the Albertson store or something like that and, and get as many wines as possible from these, uh, these regions. Generally it was, um, I had to go with the cheaper wines and that would have been a lot of Rieslings and um, like Chateau St. Michel or something like yeah, that? And yeah, then go to the bottom shelf and you find a, <laughs> a Washington wine of Cabernet or Merlot or something like that. Yeah. And um, back then, buying those wines was, for Riesling, was probably like six and a half dollars. And um, I would be really splurging to get a, a cab for seven, you know. <laughs> and 
So um, anyway, so I did drink a lot of that, but it wasn't it wasn't until um, uh, a friend of mine in college, really, um, that I met again 20 years later back in Cardiff in Wales that he taught me how to drink hmm? in college and he very, was very important at the time and he showed me the the nuance of drinking beer as 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 well as whiskey and uh wine was an introduction to him but that we we had a world revolved around drinking and hmm. not in a bad way but uh that was really my introduction to drinking. Then I moved down to Portland in 97 and uh, eventually um, I had this experience with my sister. Uh, I was at their house for dinner and my brother-in-law and sister are in the wine industry out here with Woodson Ridge. Mm -hmm. We share the same hill with Wolf Rare and Patty Green Cellars. Well and before we go there, oh. maybe we should go back to where I like because this is where we kind of come together but um, right. But I, uh, for me, the part about wine is I started, I didn't grow up in a household that um, wine was prevalent. <laughs> my, my dad was a Milwaukee's best or a Schlitz beer drinker and my I, mom didn't drink at all. Yeah. <laughs> my mom didn't drink at all. Um, and we would maybe have a I wouldn't even be able to tell you but the brand, but maybe a cheap Chardonnay on a dinner table with Thanksgiving dinner. And my dad would let me have a little taste of it as you know we were little kids. So that was like really my only exposure to it until I got into college. And at that point, I didn't go as far as Boone's Farm, <laughs> but as I, Sutter Home and Behringer White Zinfandel were like, you know, and that was back in the early 90s, late late 80s when I was in college, and uh, yeah, early 90s, and um, yeah, it was White Zinn Vidal from Sutter Home and Behringer White Zinn uh, that I really kind of would, I turned to, you know, and everybody's got to start with wine somewhere. <laughs> um, and I kind of got into like the Kindle Jackson Chardonnays that were a little bit better, and that's kind of what I dealt with a lot. Uh, the 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 Cabernet and the the Chardonnay from Kendall Jackson in the casual restaurant mm -hmm. industry is what we would always, uh, you know, maybe an Ernest and Julio Gallo or right. something like that would oh, be what yeah. the that's what they carry for glass pours mm -hmm. um, on those corporate restaurants in most cases. Yeah, so uh, my exposure was limited to that kind of stuff at the beginning, and then. Um, I did make a trip to Napa with uh, a boyfriend right out of college. Uh, he was doing a, a year at Stanford and I took a trip and I was just 21 at that point and did the whole Napa Valley and was exposed to Cabernets for the most part, <laughs> you know, those big Bordeaux blends. Um, and I was tasting them. I didn't I didn't get the experience there to, to understand what the structure of all this stuff going on in my mouth was all about. And I'm like, I, it's drying my mouth out. 
I don't, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, after, you know, all, I'm like, let's just go see Behringer and White and Sutter Home. I want to go see those estates. <laughs> so I, it's what I recognized and I knew I liked. Mm -hmm. So that's where we, we ended up seeing all of those, but I saw a lot of Cabernets along the way. And I finally, um, looking back, now understand uh, from a different, much different perspective now, but um, I realize, uh, that those were just very young mm -hmm. wines mm -hmm. and nobody taught me about the fruit flavors and the tannic influence coming from the barrels and all of the different flavor profiles that were happening and I didn't understand it in my palate until much later. Um, so then... You started being in the wine or the restaurant business and you started your, your chef right which brings us to when we met and started dating in late 90s 99 or so and we made it up to whistling ridge to our family's uh family's farm in-law family and his sister's house for dinner and i taste this yummy bright cherry fruited flavor and elegant profile going on within my palate and I'm like it was you know it was a Pinot Noir from their vineyard and it was just the family it wasn't even a labeled bottle but every year that they make a batch that's just family that's on the shiners and that's what we drink for the family stuff and oh, I fell in love with it I was I was taken by it. I'm like, this is a red wine I can drink. I love this. And that was the start for me to like really start to dive into Pinot Noir and it. understand it. My, my, yeah. I was telling the story about um, the dinner I had with my sister and brother-in-law. And he went down, it wasn't a Pinot, but he went downstairs into what he called their cellar, but it was really where the boxes are and the dust collects and the spiders are, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. And he went down there and he, he literally got the bottle out of the box and blew off the dust. And it's like, where? Oh, no. And he looked at it and it was, it was a Washington cab. And it was 15 years old at that time. And um, so he brought it upstairs. I don't remember what we were having for dinner. Yeah. Um, but I do remember that cab. And it was Yakima Valley um, Winery. And uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It didn't exist back then in the late 90s. <laughs> and so we were drinking something that absolutely was gone, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in reality, except for what was in that bottle. And um, so he got the glasses and he opened it up and it was ginger, he pulled it out and uh, gingerly pulled it out mm -hmm. and uh, um, poured it out. And that was my first experience of having a chestnut hue colored red wine. Mm -hmm. And we both looked at each other. I think it was my brother-in-law's first experience too. And um, I said, is this, is this good to drink? <laughs> <laughs> and we and it was literally on use this cup as an example was it he poured it out and you know i didn't know anything about nose or anything like that but i just did the courtesy sip and just touched it to my lips and then i i literally grabbed the bottle <laughs> and i said you can't have this <laughs> this is mine and i didn't even know what it was really mm -hmm. e yeah. except for the fact in my world of drinking was that this changed the way I looked at wine from that point forward. And it made me realize that yeah. maybe the geography guy inside of me, um, I was more interested in where it came from and how could anything be this good. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it wasn't a mixed drink. It wasn't like a margarita or something like that. And it wasn't beer, which I, I adore beer. But at that time, that changed the way I looked at it. <laughs> and then I went, probably the next week, I went out and tried to find a job in the wine business. <laughs> and um, I was unemployed at that time. So, uh, so that's what I did, but I didn't know anything about it. Eventually wound up being a beer salesman. And, yeah. and at Woodward Brothers Brewing Company, and then uh, got to the distribution side of things and started working at Columbia Distributing in Portland. And that's where I was exposed. I was an on-premise beer salesman, but I was exposed to a lot of wine, great wine. Yeah. And, and uh, industry friends, Bill Hansen, worked at Columbia at that time. He, um, he's at uh, Stoller Vineyards now. And um, yeah. he was instrumental in me really understanding more about wine because we all get together now and wine to me became family. And so Bill would come to our family's house and then Mike Getzel would come to our house. And, and um, Brian O'Donnell from Belpont. Yeah, yeah they're good friends, Brian and, and Jill. Uh, uh, Adia Wines. Um, Bill, yeah, Dean and Ann. Dean and Ann. <laughs> yeah. Um, we met all these people, and it, they were just yeah. friends. Kristen and Jim, and then the Albans. All those. Yeah. So wine. Yeah. Why wine would be the culmination of of family and friends that came mm -hmm. together, and yeah. we were such a part of it, and we didn't even realize it. And then in 2012, we started a company because it was just like we had a car that was paid for and it held six people. <laughs> And well, wow. yeah, and I like mean, to like to to guys. back up a little bit, yeah. you know, we met, and we ended up moving back to Colorado from 2002 right. to 2009. Um, I was I was given a job opportunity back in Colorado, and it was David kind Oscars. of the end of my 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 dad's life mm -hmm. lifetime, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Mark ended up working for Budweiser in Colorado. And the, you know, the funny thing is we would always come back every year. So our family, at the family uh, vineyard at Chuck and Diane's house, they would bring all the grapes down from the vineyard at, up at Dick and Patricia's and <coughs> Labor Day weekend, we always had to come back. And it was the family bottling for all those Shiner bottles that we would be drinking and we would we would not want to miss those those years if we if at all possible. No. We were always trying favorite, to get here. Because when we were in Colorado, we couldn't find wines of that quality and that level. Um, and I think for me, at the beginning of all of this, I didn't even realize what we were sitting within. I mean, I was still living in Portland, and and I've come to realize that a lot of people in Portland don't even know what's in their backyard out here. And I was one of those people for a really long time, um, not realizing that this country was out here full of this beautiful nature and places. And the vines were just, you know, they're starting off to, to the, you know, when you look at the history of our valley and how long it's really been here late 90s was still in its infancy. Mm -hmm. I, we're still in our infancy, if you ask me, but <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more now than there was back in 2000. And uh, it's just, it's, we jumped from <laughs> going to Colorado, doing that Labor Day weekend bottling, and then trying to figure out how do we get this wine back home on a plane so we can have some wine. <laughs> oh my God, I think <laughs> this is the funniest story. the policy on 
shipping wine on Air on Southwest Airlines. <laughs> because I just put like newspaper between the boxes. We had boxes just the I regular boxes with the, 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 the inserts for regular case packaging. They were just like, literally, they didn't know. And we had seven cases of wine. And so we just checked it and then we watched it go from this checked area over to this conveyor belt. And, and they were going to x-ray it. Oh, remember, God. And I remember one of the box boxes falling off of the, the And we hear it crash. Oh, God. And you saw liquid coming out. Oh, no. And, and they're like, uh. And I'm like, we better go to the. We were right going. Now, we were already going through security. And we get this we overhead <laughs> call at Portland International going, Helen Avery and Mark Trike, please return to the ticketing counter. <laughs> we didn't leave Portland for another eight hours. We. Yeah. We were not going to leave the wine, so <laughs> I, told, I told Helen I we said. missed our flight. We took a cab and we went in and tried to find uh, like a Staples or a, a store that would have bubble wrap at least. And the girl at the ticketing counter was so nice. She, she was, was working with us because nowadays you walk up to those ticket counters if you don't have the right packaging, you're not getting that wine on. Mm -hmm. This, but they didn't have those regulations back then for sh for taking it on the flight. It, well, mind you, this was probably before 9-11 happened. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a big reason why that happened the way it did. And um, No, it wasn't. It was after. Yeah. yeah it was after anyways, it was a crazy afternoon to go find packaging to get all of the bottles wrapped up the w as best we could, get them back in a box, tape the box back up, and get on another flight that we got pushed off to, which I'm surprised it even happened. But we got back home. So I don't think you guys understand what we did. We individually bubble wrapped every single box. <laughs> and stuffed them back in there and then and like wrapped, wrapped them up. everything else around it and then taped it up. Yeah. So we probably bought $100 worth of bubble wrap <laughs> I don't know. to do seven cases. And then the person behind the manager behind the counter just like, okay. She gave, she, she gave a stamp of and, approval and, and we got like, it on. We're like, yeah. And I was exhausted. I, Helen was well, really revved up about this and this whole journey to get to the, I was just like, I'm ready to give up. It's like, do we really want this wine that bad? And Helen's like, it's thousands of dollars worth of wine. <laughs> we are going to bring it home. I'm like, okay. Was I was great. on a mission. Like, it was just like yeah. stacked against our wall. And it wasn't the, it was the beginning of wine coming to Colorado. Yeah. Plenty of wine against our wall after a couple of years. But <laughs> you couldn't go into the liquor stores in Denver or anywhere really for that matter. And all I, and if I Oregon. did, I could find Duck Pond. Mm -hmm. I could find Erath, e and I could find Firesteed were the three. And those are our mass producers that are here. And those are the ones that are the $15 price points too, <laughs> right. which are, you know, they're great. That's what gets people here for us that, you know, it's your entry in. But once I had that level of boutique wine from a specific AVA in that specific terroir, and I started to understand it, I was like, not going to go back to the $15 yeah. bottles of okay. those producers anymore. <laughs> I was sold on the better, the better places and the better places yeah, and in our area. one of my area. thoughts when we were living in Colorado, and we lived in, we lived in great places, um, being down in the Denver area between Boulder and Denver. Um, uh, but then we moved to, to Breckenridge. And mm -hmm. uh, being up there, I thought, 
God, wouldn't it be great to have just a wine store dedicated to Oregon Pinot? <laughs> and that was just a thought I had. Never, never pursued it, but I still think that's a concept that anybody from Colorado watching this use it. Sell it up in breakfast. Yeah. Buy. Because a lot of people go to Aspen every year for big events and mm -hmm. big Pinot and other wines. But um, but uh, there's a huge market up there. Yeah. For really specific wines. Yeah. And, um, and it was specific to me because we tried really hard when we were in Colorado buying yeah. only Washington or Oregon if we could. Not because saturated market was California there. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... So yeah, after getting getting married in Colorado and going through those Labor Day weekends of traveling back and forth, um, we finally decided to start a family. Uh, and it was right about the same time. It coincided with my father's passing. Mm -hmm. And we had a big decision. Do we stay in Colorado or do we want to move well, he back here, <laughs> well, when he passed away, it, it made the decision a little bit more easy for us because there really wasn't anything. I mean, our friends were a hard thing to leave, but we wanted family to have close to us for raising our family. Mm -hmm. And as I, since I was pregnant when my dad passed, I we made the decision to move back here and not just to Portland, but back to this area to Newburgh. Mm -hmm. And um, Whistling Ridge became really important yeah, at that point. His sister and Chuck and Dick and Patricia up at the vineyard were a big reason why we decided to make that transition back mm -hmm. here in 2009 and come um, <coughs> start our family, which yeah. is what we did. And Well, when her dad passed away, then that was six months into her pregnancy. Yeah. And he was living in Colorado Springs. We didn't have any connection to Mike Etzel at that time. But because he's from well, we met him plenty yeah, of times at family dinners. But yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, when I don't know if anybody's ever been to Colorado Springs, but I loved his her uh, dad. But when he wasn't there, it's like I don't want to live in Colorado Springs. And so, and I think both of us felt that way. She kind of grew up there, right? And um, so we decided where do we want to go, and we had an opportunity to do it so we decided to move out here to Oregon to be close to my sister yeah and knowing where my mom was and relative to other sisters if we stayed in Colorado we'd never my son would never see family right so we decided to come out here and it just brought us out to this area mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that was really the beginning of, of now what do we want to do out here because we had time well and since we had started a family I was done being a manage manager in a restaurant that I was not willing to work those crazy odd hours and many hours <laughs> while I was raising a child yeah so um, you know so we got here in uh, let's see it was 2009, right after our son was born, literally 10 days, we yeah. up and moved. <laughs> I know it was crazy how it all felt in, fell into place. So we got here right at the 1st of June. Um, he was born May 20th, and we got here June, like, 3rd. <laughs> I know. Incredible, isn't it? I know. <laughs> and uh, it went well without a hitch. No, it really did. It did, but we got here, and... Um, I, I, luckily, with my dad's passing, I was able to take a little bit of time off and spend those first few months with my son at home and we be that her, mom for a little her, bit. Yeah, we got a, well, to, simply we had 
we had an inheritance from his passing from his estate. Yeah. And so that allowed that us to allowed do a us lot to, of things. That we wouldn't have been able to do at the beginning of all of this. So we, we got here and got established and then we did have to finally get going again with jobs and um, Mark ended up working as a supervisor at the Safeway in Newburgh. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't really want to get back into that beer salesman no. business. It was, it had done its, he'd done his t time. Yeah. But I was fine. I just figured I would maybe look for a bartending type job. So the Allison Inn and Spa had just opened up. And just, was, <laughs> I remember that when she went in. Yeah. Like, she was like, get my resume ready. So I got it all ready. And then, and then we went to a, a job fair for her to the Allison. It yeah. literally just open. It had no, they barely had managers. Well, they yeah. opened in September of '09, and I started working there in in like March of 2010. So uh, we that's, waited. That's Pierre's it last name. Zrik. Yeah, yeah. I can. I'm sorry. Anyway, sorry, Pierre, if you watch this. <laughs> I say it wrong. I got Pierre. Uh, but um, <laughs> when we set, went to a job fair there, and here comes this woman with immense amount of restaurant experience. And uh, on the management side, and we're seeing people <coughs> in there, and then you know they're just kind of mingling around, and people would leave and come, and then then she went in there, sat down, gave the guy the resume, and immediately he got out of the chair. I was in the in the concourse, mm -hmm. and he immediately got out of the chair and went directly to Pierre, and basically was like holding this resume up, and and that I just looked at Helen. It had two worlds going on. Helen and these guys talking and about And I'm Helen. just sitting in there waiting, just, yeah, going. Just sitting there like this <laughs> for like 10 minutes, like nothing happening here. And then then they have this conversation. This guy went right back in there. And um, basically, my side, you can tell this rest of the story, but my side of the story is like. Well, they did end up actually talking to me about wanting, uh, they had a management, management position open. And I'm just like, I really, well, I gave them a number. For one and I don't think they were ready to pay that number for <laughs> just a regular manager but I came from being a general manager but at the same time my experience wasn't high-end fine dining James Beard places it was yeah. more corporate <laughs> and at the same time I'm like I really don't want to be a manager so I gave them a really high number because I didn't want to do it it had to be worth my while and it, it really wasn't gonna be so I was really honestly looking for the bartending position because I wanted to just have that flexibility with a child, have hours that were going to be 40 or less a week, mm -hmm. not 60 because you're on a salary and you can, they make you do that. <laughs> so it was, I'm, I was happy with, and he's like, well, they offered me the bar, the daytime bartending position there. And that was the start of me really understanding. Totally. This Valley's wines, the wine, really meeting a lot of winemakers. That the list there has oh, seven hundred bottles on it. I mean, it's everybody. huge. And but every day during the daytime, they were all coming in and having lunch. They would bring in their bottles of wine. They wanted to get their bottles of wines on the list, so they're talking to this. You know, the, all of the managers are sommeliers there um, of some level of an, or another. And then you have the chefs pairing and doing the foods to pair with the wines. And we got to taste those, those foods and those wines together on a daily basis. So I really started to understand and develop my palate 
from a food and beverage standpoint mm -hmm. that I had never done before. Mm -hmm. um, and that was an, an integral part. And I didn't even know I was doing it. It's just by happenstance mm -hmm. that it's, you know, turned into uh, m that development for myself. And yeah. I, I didn't even know that's where it was leading. So um, it did just automatically through the course of but time. She had, a, she had a palate developed with her culinary background. <clears throat> yeah. And, and then it was a natural progression for her, as it turns out, to go right into wine. Yeah. And the big thing was that it was predominantly Pinot because that's what was here. And um, and my experience was never Pinot, mm -hmm. you know, right. except for family stuff. But that was really the, that transition to now our world was becoming more and more Pinot, and then she was meeting people left and right, like Patricia Green. Um, yeah, and Jim Mike Anderson. Essa would come in there a Doug lot. Tunnell would Doug would come Tunnell. in all the time. Don Hag uh, yeah. would come in and have lunch all the time from Vidon, mm -hmm. and I really got to know all those, yeah, a lot of those people. And, and then the distributors, right. Marcus Goodfellow. I mean, we already knew Marcus because he's our family's winemaker, but Marcus would come in, Garen would come in. I mean, just, oh, yeah. yeah. The people at Galaxy uh, would show up to, mm -hmm. to there. And um, I was at Safeway at this time. And um, they knew my, they would, they would call me over to talk to people about wine he there. He practically became person. the wine steward, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, but anyway, that was uh, that was a that was a big big part of where we went from there. Because my and then, um, but we we had a big transition that really got us into what we're doing now at that point. Yeah. Because we were always um, we were we were we always wanted to do something on our own and not have our own you know have jobs. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And um, we, but yeah. we now we have. Now you could we have say we were going. Now. We were going through a midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. The way I describe and, it. And yeah. The way I describe it to me, and you have a lot to say on this, but the way I saw it was, we had dreams, but our dreams were running way faster than we could catch them. Yeah. And from my perspective, I just gave up chasing it, and it was kind of a low point. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we were burning candles at both ends. Um, I would mm -hmm. take the kids. Um, I had to work at four o'clock. She was she was getting off around three, and so I would take the kids in the car, drop them off. She'd go home. I go to work, and then I get home at one. And, and in two. the course of all of this, I we had a daughter mm -hmm. yeah, uh, two in kids. 2011. Here, um, her name was Chelsea, and. This is where the transition happens, where we lost her. Yeah. She, uh, yeah, so we lost Chelsea. Um, and it, was a, it wasn't a planned thing, no. <laughs> that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But she, uh, it was a home accident. Yeah, she and fell in our, I won't just say it, I mean, she fell, it's a, our story, she fell in our backyard pool and drowned. Mm -hmm. And I was working at the Allison just started my shift that morning and Mark was home with them when it all happened yeah. and I'll never forget that phone call that day yeah. Yeah. Um, when yeah. the hostess came around the corner and said Helen you have to go home and I'm like she knew. what do you mean yeah. <laughs> and they just said Chelsea's the paramedics are working on Chelsea and that's all they needed to say I knew exactly what had happened it didn't 
have to know that it was the pool. I knew it was the pool. It's yeah. it just you know. And yeah. I was running out of that building and Pierre I ran into Pierre. I know he'll never forget that day either. And neither will any of the people that are the that worked at that family. Yeah, they were. I ran out that back door and he was like, let me put you in my car and I'll drive you. And I go, you won't drive fast enough. <laughs> and I, I jumped in the car and I got home and the paramedics were working on her in the yard and they flight for life to, to Portland. And they had her on life support for about 24 hours before we had to finally just call it because it wasn't, there was no chance yeah. for her to survive. It wasn't. It was a brutal 24 hours for us. But I have to say. But it was also, it, it was probably one of, it, it, it was one of the biggest days for a wake up that anybody can ever go through. Mm -hmm. um, I tell our guests, you know, sometimes on our tours, the story comes out because you have very intimate days with your guests throughout the day. And then other times the story does not come out, um, and that's okay. It, there's a right place and a right moment for it. Um, and when I have to talk about it, or I do talk about it, it's it it's the most painful experience anybody, any parent could ever go through, mm -hmm. losing a child. Yet you, ha I always tell people, you have the choice to stay in pain or surrender to it and be okay and move forward. And she gave us a gift to wake up and do life in a, in a manner that gives us purpose and fulfills us with the passionate things that we do in our life. And I don't know if I would have been there had this not happened to us. So even though it's painful not having her here in our life, She's given us this gift to move forward and start this business um, and be so passionate about it, which I think is a large part of our success mm -hmm. and where we're at right now with what we do um, on a daily basis. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah. It, was, it wasn't easy to come to that conclusion. No, um, it took a long time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, sure. It, yeah. Was, it was, I mean, we were at the low point in our life then and then you realized, oh, we can go a little bit lower. <laughs> no one plans for that. Um, and we realized where we were really wasn't that low. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that perspective of looking up was really, um, it was part of us coming closer together. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. and then really realizing who we were and what we wanted to do and um, where we wanted to go. Yeah. And we, we took the opportunity, of, uh, I learned how to build websites, I learned she learned a lot about online marketing and mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, what we did was um, uh, one day, my story is we, we had this car that was, had six people. Well, we got to a place after and, a few I, months of, uh, yeah, we had to do a lot of healing and a little, the community supported us like you would, yeah. wouldn't believe. I mean, I have nothing but loving memories of how Newberg. Newberg and the Allison Inn and Spa Safeway. and Safeway and all the people that we My knew family. 
that that supported us, uh, the Newburgh Christian Church, you know, doing what they did um, yeah. to get us through that horrible time and lifting us up. I mean, this this the chefs at the Allison and Spa, they went out and bought a cooler. And every morning, uh, they, they just said, bring it back to, bring, when no, you need food, they're, the they're like, they did at first, and they're like, just bring it back if you need, or they had somebody pick it up. And they refilled it for us for like two or three weeks to make sure we were fed and all of our family was fed and taken care of. I know we did. We finally had. We're like we're okay now. We we, we can get through this. We weren't okay. I mean, <laughs> well, it was two weeks. We you, you stopped feeding us. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's just you know, the Austins did so much. Yeah. Um, you know, you you went into a place to work like that, and they, as owners of a business like that, they they knew who each one of us was, mm -hmm. and they took care of all of us. I have respect for the Austin family. Yeah, and, and, and to this Joanne day, and Ken, they were, I mean, they looked at everybody. Um, this is what family does, and yeah, and they treat a lot of their um, their employees as this is what we do, and and the integrity that was involved um, was really you learn from their example, and and the employees that helped us, the management at the restaurant and the hotel, they, they embodied it. Mm -hmm. And they, sh they, they, they were kind of a beacon, you know, a bright light for when we were in our darkest corner. I, I, I always say like, they, they were the wings that lifted us up and kept us flying. Mm -hmm. And I'm an artist too, and, and um, a pencil artist. And one of my, one of my portraits I drew was uh, after, um, uh, Joanne passed away. They had a memorial service, and it it was top of my list to actually do this portrait of her and and present it to her husband. And um, so I asked Lonnie if that would be an appropriate thing to do, and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, she said yes, and then she had it had it framed, um, and um, then I was able to present it. To can before he passed away, obviously, mm -hmm. and uh, I couldn't even get through it because um, his family did so much for us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And presenting this drawing of of his wife, and and all I can just remember is Ken just saying that, "Oh, you guys have been through so much more." Yeah, just humble yeah. humans. Yeah, and incredible family. Yeah. And that's what we came to realize is that the community here, and we get asked this in our cars a lot, they're like, do people compete and is it bad? And I'm like, no. Uh, my memories and my thoughts of everybody that's here that we've come in contact with have just been a pillar of strength and support for one another. Yeah. And when you hear of the passing of a winemaker or something mm -hmm. like that, Everybody, you know, everybody steps up and is there for one another, and we we realize that this is where we need to be. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it was nine it was nine months or so after Chelsea passed away that we were just we were at this place that we had to 
think about going back to work again. <laughs> I mean, we took a good nine months off. We literally did not work. We did, we healed. Mm -hmm. um, and we were lucky to be able to do that um, without a lot of financial strife. We were able to make it through. And um, that, that, uh, that's when we, we looked at where are we at? What do we want to do? That midlife crisis, we were just like, we've got to do life differently. And we really, I guess I've always had an entrepreneurial bug in my system. It wasn't the first business that I've actually owned. When we were in Breckenridge, I owned a coffee cart. <laughs> and that was, small, a, but it was, it was a good business, yeah. You know, and I, I've always felt, I'm like, if, if I can run multi-million dollar corporate restaurants, why can't I do something that just supports us to give us the flexibility to raise our child the way we want to? the lifestyle that we want to be able to choose and pick our own hours and and work when we want to mm -hmm. and that was my ultimate goal and we looked at what does this area offer and it's kind of a no-brainer when you look at it um, there's wine <laughs> there's a lot of it <laughs> and so we started talking to uh, we looked at a couple of different wine tour companies and for us we came together we kind of had mentioned it in passing i guess a couple times going we should just start a wine tour company can i tell my story yeah okay his, my, is, his is different than mine but yeah. my, <laughs> but, I, but i tell it all the time in my tours and and, um, and it makes an impact with them be, i literally remember it this way i was in our bedroom and Helen, I think, was in the kitchen. And I walked down the hallway. She came into the great room we met there. And, and I go, I have something to tell you. And she goes, I have something to tell you. And she said, you go first. <laughs> and I said, let's start a wine touring company. And she goes, that's what I was going to do. <laughs> and that was, and when I tell that story, people are just like, you're kidding. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm not. In three days, I just, we made a list of what, I mean, go on Google and try and figure out what URL, what, what the Well, we needed a domain name we could get. And so I had we like looked 20, at 20 of them, Cellador Wine Tours was available, yeah. so we bought it. We looked at every other wine companies that we could find, how they were doing things, what their price points were. Mm -hmm. You know, were they offering, what was, you know, how were they offering things throughout the day? And then I also looked at, well, I know this is what I would want. Involved, yeah, I mean, we wanted, I'm, we I'm like, it. this is what I know I would want out of a day yeah. for this area and be able to put that personal touch on it. Because um, I was kind of at that time with some of the internet marketing things that I had been learning. It was about personal branding and your story. Mm -hmm. Your story is so freaking huge. Mm -hmm. And so I love the archive because right. it's amazing the story of each individual. It makes their journey so incredible. Right. And when you go into wineries where the story's been lost, it's it's a sad thing. Because mm -hmm. there are places that we can go nowadays that don't that story isn't being or the told. story's changing, it's evolving because well, the story didn't work before. Right. You know? But, and but there's no foundation for the story. But yeah, so yeah, we just we took off and really um, put all of those things. And I think the one key thing we wrote down that 
really has like been a point from the beginning of this touring business to to now is we wrote one simple sentence that said we are here to what do we say we guide guides guiding you with couple I can't I'm not saying it right <laughs> couples and small groups that know each other yeah yeah we only um, tours for tours for small, small groups and couples will never put you into a minivan <laughs> or micro bus right you do not know and they are customized all private cars all always the, all the tours are customized and, and uh, um, created for you and yeah that was the first video that you actually created which which yeah. still is running around and um, but it was always focused on um, creating your own story and um, getting you know you can have all the experts in your life about wine but um, uh, it's not their palate that's tasting the paint off mm -hmm. it's right. yours mm -hmm. and um, let's let's if it's your first journey out here let's start your own story yeah. and and the story has been really important to us and I think that's our clientele. They realize that, and that customization to find exactly where they need to go. Yeah, I've been many times on a tour where, um, you know, they had this what we call the usual suspects. I won't name them here, but the usual suspects list of where their friends told them they had to go because it's the best wine. And then we get done. We get to that first usual suspect, and we get to that spot, and then then I watch them taste and. Uh, learn what they're really liking. Now we're getting into regionality maybe here. That first stop was a stop where they get wine grapes from different regions. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, they're liking this one. Now I know this next stop is on your list, but can I make a recommendation? Mm -hmm. And if we go to this recommendation, I think this is the reason why you're going to like it. And so, we'll, and then they'll say yes. And so I get, we drive to the next recommendation. And then you see the response from them. It's like, this is where they needed to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And um, and I've had, we've had many tours where the people at the end don't want the tour to end. They're having so much fun. <laughs> and and I was having so much fun, especially our first year. Yeah. And I didn't want the tours to end. <laughs> but it's just like, the movie's got to wrap up. And um, so I would get there and I would just say something. It just came out one day. I just said, well, you guys really, you really thought you knew where you wanted to go. I just took you where you needed to go. And it stuck. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. exactly what we do almost yeah. every single tour. Um, especially the people that are really, we rarely have people that aren't enthusiastic when they leave because they've had such a good time. Mm -hmm. And that's just a reflection of what our company has developed into. Right, right. Simply. Yeah, so. So tell me about tell me about the early years of the business of, of once once you got it started. What were some of the challenges you faced? And tell me about kind of finding that that palette for what you wanted to do. Uh, what were some of the early challenges? What were some of the early successes? Was there a, a moment when you thought this is something that's going to work for us? Well, I mean, when we first started, it, I did have an income um, coming in for myself through my internet marketing business that I was doing, um, which was supporting and making sure our bills were getting paid. Um, and Mark was pretty much the main driver 
and guide. <laughs> yeah, for, for a long time. Right, because I mean, be when you start a domain name and a website, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a good team. I mean, it yeah. was, we, we um, I think the big challenge, that, well, maybe for any business that you're starting, especially with, I mean, it's seven years. We just finished seven years. Yeah. And um, and I I really I, I'm really looking forward to our eighth year. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but I think with a husband wife team, um, we've had challenges just being husband and wife. Right. Well, and being a, a business partner. And yeah. But the the big thing is just um, knowing what your roles are, and that was a challenge for me. Um, because there's expectations from both of us to learn certain things, but over time, it was, um, I mean, like when Helen and our accountant are talking together, it's just like, I've got air in my head just, just whistling out of my ears. It's just like, no idea what they're talking about. They're two <laughs> pieces of pot, and they're just like, as long as they understand each other, I'm perfectly okay with them. That's her skill set. That's yeah. why she's a great manager. Mm -hmm. And uh, my skill set was really out in the field, and and, and maintaining some of the website stuff because yeah. he under. It's funny because I understand emailing and marketing that direction, and he's good at the HTML of I can build a and the pictures, and the, he can build the website, um, and then we kind of like come together between the writing of the content on the website. We kind of have to go back and forth and yeah. change check up with each other on things that get done and then I, I remember but yeah when Helen was working and I was doing this I was just like imagine what it would be like if we actually treated this as a full-time job mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and um, and because we were doing great and um, but that it was that scary point where we decided it was like our third year well we decided yeah. we're doing this full-time and there goes that income mm -hmm. You, you go through a transition, both of us coming from parents that were depression-aged <laughs> kids that grew up, and then, you know, so both of our parents are, were olders, built, born in the 30s, and, um, yeah, both of our parents were older, a little bit older when they had us, too. So, um, we were brought up with that mentality and for me, it, my father drilled into me as a kid, he tried to anyways, I don't know if it worked, that you need to have a good job, you, you know, you go get a good education from college and you have a good job and it needs to have benefits and it needs to support you and you, you make sure that those things are covered in your life. And I was always the, the wild child, I guess, in my family that, at least I was always told that. <laughs> because my thought process was to want, I always wanted more to be able to, I'm like, there's more to life than living in this nine to five world. And did I do that? Yeah, I went there. I, that's what I had to do to get started, but it gave me the background. But I always had a piece of myself inside that was confident enough to do this, but yet it was a really scary leap to really go and say, can I let go of somebody else paying me? and having those benefits and having that insurance to creating it for myself and for our for our family and there was a lot of like mindset work that we went through and but all of it coincides with this little bit of a wake-up call and this is this is where I look back at, at what happened with 
um, with Chelsea is I don't think I could have gotten there without that boost of what happened to us mm -hmm. to, to push us this direction. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that's the gift I look at that she gave us because it's pushed us to be able to have a mindset that says you can create for yourself anything you want. You can have it if you just put your mind to it and do it mm -hmm. and take the action to do it. And I live with that inside of me now every day. And I don't think I could probably go back to work for anybody else. Right. Unless it was part time yeah, helping or consulting for them. There's, there's a point in your life where you are no longer employable. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's us now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can help a lot of people create. And we've had a lot of people come to us for um, guidance mm -hmm. for starting a tour company. Yeah. Um, actually, we have. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, you never stand on your own shoulders. Um, yeah. You're always standing on somebody else's. So we, we had tour companies that, um, that uh, we didn't rely on, but we kind of we knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. We didn't pay attention to them, but we knew what they were doing. Um, and, and I think one of the um, it was John at Insider Wine Tours. Um, he's retired. Years ago. Now he's now retired he's now. Yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's still going out there. But um, one day I saw him at the at Soder Vineyards, and um, he just sat down next to me. He goes, "You guys have a great reputation out here." And I was just like, "Who are you?" <laughs> <laughs> and right. And obviously, I you know. Um, something was going right, and we were doing something yeah. really well, and uh, people were recognizing us just for being who we were. Mm -hmm. We weren't trying to outdo anybody. We weren't trying to um, make sure that, or we weren't trying to badmouth anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, but that's you know that's true with the wine industry out here is that you don't see wineries trying to badmouth each other. Yeah, mm -mm. never. And we're part of that, and we're part of that success story. Um, so I think the challenge uh, really was just getting past our personal demons, yeah, you know, and mm -hmm. and build up, um, build up each other to keep doing better. Yeah, at what we do, and what can you do better as a wine tour guide? Um, we're you know number one, uh, don't call yourself a driver. You know, yeah, There's more than that. We know yeah. the valley. There's a huge separation between what we do and how we educate throughout the day and guide, um, show the geography, the places we pick are on purpose for our guests. We have conversations with them in ahead of time, um, if at all possible. You know, do we get guests that, that come with their itineraries already in place? Yeah, that's fine. That's part of the gig. That's, but yes. at, in most cases, people have come to our website and found it. And the reason we developed our website to be full of a lot of content and information um, is so that they could read through it and see that we weren't just a driving service. Mm -hmm. Um, getting you from location to location. We are going to educate you and give you history of this valley and education on the wines throughout the day. Not just sit in our cars while they're in the tasting room tasting. We don't do that at all um, unless we have to. But <laughs> some some places if they have that appointment made <laughs> when we get to stick a, sit out in the car. But um, you know we we learned though. I mean there was at the beginning we had to like that's going into the appointments 
with our guests, listening to the winemakers, going to these little smaller boutique locations. It was so valuable. Like we've done some, done research and we're tasting the wines, but to listen to the winemakers themselves mm -hmm. at each one of these appointments has developed the this information set that's inside of us now that we can pass on to our guests. And one thing I'll add to that is is uh, uh, you learn early on. Uh, you got the challenge early on was being too much part of our guest experience and, and allowing, it's kind of like our children, you know, allowing them to go to where we just took them and allowed them to be guests of theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not interfere <laughs> because we got them there and we're bringing them an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's the places that get us, I guess, realize that, is that we yeah. are bringing them an opportunity here. And um, this is somebody become a club member to buy, you know, buy more wine to tell their story when they leave, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they put their best foot forward when we show up. And I think that's a real credit to us. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but that was part of us learning not to interfere. Um, uh, and I think maybe me more so than Helen, I, I had a tendency to kind of follow them in and, and, uh, and interject. Mm -hmm. But um, like with Dan Warren Sykes, for example, at Utopia Vineyards, um, uh, I, his tasting room is through the door and that's where he's at. And, and so what I learned with him, besides his wealth of knowledge, is um, just to ask him specific questions that my guests weren't asking mm -hmm. or um, right. to, to you lead can them into yeah. asking more questions of him. Mm -hmm. And because Dan will answer any question with any opinion, whatever, and if you can ask him um, specific questions about the nuance of winemaking, because I already heard a lot of it, so I never, I try not to ask Dan the same question twice, but tailored to the group that has a question about maybe finances of vineyards. Mm -hmm. yeah, right, and you can, you can have some of these conversations driving from location to location. So really paying attention to what your guests are asking and, and talking about in the car and then being able to have that conversation carried on by the winemaker in that location. So we'd say, hey, we were just talking about XYZ mm -hmm. topic mm -hmm. as we were driving here. Can you expand upon that from your perspective? And then then it starts things off in another whole nother way. Yeah. I mean, we're, I think we're the experts in taking what they want to do and get them to the right place mm -hmm. so they can create their own story. <clears throat> and, um, but I, there's no way I'm ever going to say that I'm, I'm going to take the place of Marcus Goodfellow or, well, or the winemaker that makes the, the wine maker, itself or, you know, Dan Warrensites or, um, <laughs> any winemaker out there. Um, one of my great friends right now is Tony Reinders. Um, <laughs> yeah, we love Tony. I will never. Tony's I mean, awesome. Tony will, he's like, he's making like half the wine in the valley right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the importance, our relationship with that winemaker is, is invaluable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to make it that they are the reason why they're here, mm -hmm. not us. Mm -hmm. We're not yeah. the reason. So yeah. we gotta be humble a little bit. It's like, you know, you see our picture on the on the website and everything. You know a lot more about us than we know about you. Yeah. Um, but 
we want you to know about the winemaker. Sure. We so, want you yeah. to know about the people that are making these these great wines. But yeah, I guess I mean to kind of I guess to get round circle about to the to finish off that whole question is just to you know we it took time for the domain name and the traffic to our website to gain some traction. You know, our first tour we took out to get some photographs and have that social media because that's a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, we called upon some of our best friends and said, let us take you out on a tour today and show you what we're going to do. So we'd have that, you know, social uh, atm atmosphere on the, to start us off with. Now we have thousands of photos. <laughs> we have a good Instagram and a following of our ugly green cup, which is a whole nother story. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it took, it took a year or two and then it, it finally was that point where we said, I have to, we just have to jump in and say this is going to work for us and there's enough coming in on a monthly basis and I, I had to learn how to budget too for the seasonality because there is definitely seasonality to this business um, and for us specifically as, as tour guys we had to make sure that we account for those off-season months to be able to make it through <laughs> right. mm -hmm. right. and uh, so that's something you know that we were able to do and you know, by the time we were three, four years into this, we replaced, completely replaced our co corporate incomes from our jobs and uh, from his beer sales and my um, restaurant management position. And we were able to qualify for a loan to buy our house with the bank. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, saying I did it with my own business and I'm not being paid from, that was huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a, I think it's a big deal. Anyways, um, yeah. and and now we live in the middle of this beautiful place and we enjoy being able to say, if I want this day off next week and we don't want to take a tour out, we can block it off of our calendar and we can do it. Yeah, And, the, and that's nice. No. Do we do that not much but, <laughs> but you could but we could we get a lot of time off in the winter time though during the season we just work our butts off in the summertime and then the the winter time like next week we're leaving for a vacation that was well deserved mm -hmm. and to be able to do that and and enjoy the holidays with our son it's like a lot of people is are. awesome we have so many yeah. friends right now that are just loving their life that are like and you know that are winemakers or winemaker couples, you know, <laughs> and um, they are just getting out of Dodge because they've worked their butt off this whole <laughs> six months mm -hmm. and they just need a break. And um, everybody leaves. I mean, it's just like in January, there's nobody here. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's where we're at too. Um, but we're always available, we're always open, mm -hmm. um, except 12 months a year. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that that's, and that that time off is getting shorter and shorter, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, to where we start booking in April and something like that. I think the uh, we had our busiest November ever, and October. if we weren't going on this vacation, I'm not sure that this wouldn't be we just this next weekend before we even leave There's is one of the busiest like makes this one of the busiest December's we've ever had, especially with the bookings that are coming up between the Christmas and New Year's holiday. Mm -hmm. And that's when a lot of wineries want to close. And I'm like, that's when everybody wants yeah. to come on tours. <laughs> um, no. The, uh, the, one, the big challenge for, um, I think, is uh, for other tour companies that are especially coming in or 
just knowing your clientele. Mm-hmm. You've got to know mm-hmm. your clientele. Um, you can't just throw mud against the wall and uh, because you're going to attract exactly what that clientele is. Yeah. And um, that's a valuable thing to realize. Um, uh, just saying, I don't want to have these types of people, you know, then guess what? A lot of times you'll get those types of people. <laughs> You a lot of attraction. Yeah. Like you have a lot. When we when we first started, we were so we do not accept bachelorette parties. Okay, um, but from our perspective, that's that's not a very business. That's not a that's not a good business model to say I don't want bachelorette parties. Um, you just have to look at what that clientele brings. When I I know one bachelorette party with a, a group of ladies, great showed up and they had six Mercedes-Benz sitting in the parking lot and I'm taking them on a wine tour. It's not just a matter of 12 individuals there, um, well, 13 because there were, one was single or getting <laughs> married and everybody else knew that one. And, but there were, there were, everybody else was married, so I, I saw opportunity of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, six different or five different opportunities there mm-hmm. at a future date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's how you look at it. Yeah. And um, that's, that's, I understand my clientele. Mm-hmm. There, maybe not every single one of them, but, but there was clientele there that could be possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to think about that when I'm, I can't judge people. You can't judge, just because they're Canadians, they're not going to buy wine. <laughs> um, you can't do that. It's yeah. a serious problem out here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to classify certain people as not being buyers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that's, that's part of understanding your clientele. Yeah. And I think that's where the pitfall is for a lot of businesses. And we learned that early on. And I think that's what's really driven us. Yeah. Just understanding that and being comfortable with it and, and getting excited about it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about building the relationships with the industry. As you mentioned, you kind of have your usual suspects, but I'm, I'm assuming you go to a lot of different places. You obviously know a lot of different people in the industry. So tell me about how the industry receives you and has received you and, and, and building those relationships and, and sort of the give and take it with, with you and, and, and these businesses as you are bringing them people but also, you know, you, you are asking, asking of their time as well. So how does that work out? How do you make it so it's worth their time and, and you can keep bringing people back? Well, I, I think, I mean, we've gotten calls as time has gone on, as our business has, as we've built our reputation, from winemakers that have heard we do a great job and we bring good people. Um, I mean, we get told, and I hope nobody's, you know, talking behind our backs, <laughs> but we're told face to face, you know, to our faces, you guys are one of the most highly recommended ones, uh, touring companies that are out here because of the way you guys do your business. I, I remember one time going, driving up to uh, Anderson family with Cliff and Allison up there and um, <laughs> Cliff pulled me aside and he goes, guess what I found out today? I went on TripAdvisor. I said, really? That's good. And he goes, and guess who's number one out here in the valley? And I go, who? <laughs> and he goes, cellar door wine. <laughs> I was like, well, that's cool. <laughs> um, and... Um, Cliff's been a huge supporter of us, but you know right. we build a relationship. Um, he didn't know us 
we didn't know a lot of people out Scott here. Scott and Denise Flora from Native oh, yeah, Flora, Native they Flora. they called us up and they're like, Denise. we we hear you guys do you know higher end wine tours, mm -hmm. you know. At the beginning when we started this, we also had the backing of the Allison Inn and Spa. Yeah, so I mean, just big. because of my background working with them and everything, they supported, that was another piece of that pillar lifting up and that <laughs> pillar of support that they gave us as, as we started this, they did nothing but support us in anything we did and they helped, you know, were on their recommended tour list, mm -hmm. um, the Atticus in McMinnville here um, that you know you have to you know from a from a guide or a tourism perspective you have to have the right insurance and have the right you know good cars that are up to date and you have to have you know all of your Department of Transportation things like that are a, a, a part of it that you have to have as an established guiding tourism business um, but then just yeah the personal relationships um, that had already developed from the Allison was a big part in pushing us forward. Um, just going to these locations, sitting with the guests, learning from the winemakers, and, and just becoming their friends. Mm -hmm. um, and interacting throughout with, without information that wasn't overtaking that winemaker's place because mm -hmm. we've seen it happen with some locations where we've heard that tour guides start to jump in and take over the whole entire conversation and you have to if you are going to sit inside with the guests and be part of this educational day with them you have to learn to, to shut up <laughs> at certain points too. Isn't that why they develop apps for games? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have to stand back and say, we've given all the information we can up to the point of getting them in the door. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a big part of that relationship building is they know that we have been educating them throughout the day. Um, if we can lend to, the ed lend to the conversation without overtaking the conversation from them, <laughs> I think mm -hmm. that's where the big mm -hmm. shift is. is um, doing that and just and then and then having quality people that are truly inter interested in the reason why they were brought to that specific location um, over and over again you know some places are wanting us to self qualify or you know qualify those guests ahead of time are these going to be whales or are they going to just be here for the tastings in a beautiful day you know so you have to that's where a large part of our work is done to make sure that we have picked the right locations for our guests you know if I have a group of ladies that are here for a birthday or just a girls weekend out and they want to pay that you know maybe two or three in the group are just going to have the tasting fees at every place we go and maybe only one or two in the in the group might be potentially buying a couple of bottles to waive their fees mm -hmm. there are certain locations you you go to for that and you're not going to go make a winemaker appointment for somebody that's going to become a club member or is a connoisseur mm -hmm. and take them to that private appointment if they're that's not what they're you know they mm -hmm. want to sit and talk and just have 
a drink while they're looking at the beautiful views. <laughs> so I think that's a large part of how it's, they realize we do that work. Um, we have those conversations with our guests ahead of time. We've done the, the due diligence to make sure that these people are in the right location for the wines that are being presented to them um, and how they're being presented so that they know we're not going to be wasting their time if it's an appointment and they know to expect that this is just a group that's going to sit here and do their tastings today and we try to call as well you know you have open tasting rooms that don't require appointments for groups of six or less or anything like that but we still like to call our places and say hey i'm coming with a couple in you know tomorrow with you know just to give them a heads up that we're walking in the door with some people and that lets them know hey you know there's always a friendly hey Helen Mark whichever one of us is driving or even if it's one of our drivers it's really um, important to, to make that initial contact and, and yeah then, and then when you do it they they and then they see the results yeah I remember um, I forget Martin's <clears throat> last name but he's a Ponzi now but he was a Pinterest. Um when we probably the second third year that we were doing this and you go in the Pinterest, that's a very busy place and yeah. it can be and you get there on a Saturday at two o'clock um, in July and it's sunny um, it's, yeah. it's busy and I remember Martin he granted he was taller than everybody else in the room but um, he saw me walk through the door with I think it was just two people at that time and he made eye contact with me and he goes <laughs> and um, I said ladies I think it was two ladies I said ladies follow me and Martin took us over to a table and sat us there in amongst the chaos and um, he real and I, I learned something there was that he realized what we bring mm -hmm. and the opportunity that's why Martin was that's, he's, he's an opportunist and <laughs> he realized what um, um, the chances are good that he's going to sell wine and that's the bottom line we're not trying to bring people out here just to um, see the valley where we want to make it a win-win we want to make everything work it's working right. for us it's working for them and and uh, we want to keep this ball rolling mm -hmm. right. and without putting pressure on our clients you know yeah we do have a, a motive here to uh, uh, it, it makes us look good if we bring buyers <laughs> Not everybody's going to be a buyer, though. Right, but not everybody's yeah. going to be a buyer. But you have to build the experience for, for what the guest wants. Exactly, you and really do. And so um, Martin did well in that day. And when you get individual attention among the crowd, you you feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel like pulling out that pocketbook, that kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. and that's a, that's not what's driving us, but that's what's that's that's part of building that relationship mm -hmm. is. Um, and we're we are when we go to a place we do get a lot of of uh, oh Mark and Helen when we call them mm -hmm. how are you I mean <clears throat> uh, we have a lot of great relationships mm -hmm. with people that want us to come mm -hmm. and yep. and and be part of that we have people that will get kind of irritated with us for not showing up I remember Denise Denise Floor one time. Um, she came over to our house. We were having a housewarming, 
and she literally just starts whack, hits me on the arm. It's like, where have you guys been? And I'm like, we haven't had the right guest to bring to you. Clientele for you. (laughs) We're not just going to bring you people. (laughs) And um, but you know, she did that because she's a friend of ours. But she wasn't a friend of ours before we started this business. (laughs) Yeah. And um, and so. I think naturally we just build relationships, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and um, you can't be afraid of people. That's for sure. No. Um, but you you got to be able to not be able to. Uh, you got to be able to know where you are in that relationship. And we also, at, on the other side of all of it, we have to go out and do our due diligence and taste the wines at these locations because they're ever changing. Mm-hmm. You know, Pinot Noir is one way one week and then the next week you taste it again you're like oh this is not the same wine i tasted last week depending on whether you know if you're <laughs> looking at biodynamic calendars or whatever <laughs> there's so much that changes even within a month or two's time frame in the bottles and and the tasting menu so we have to changes. yeah mm-hmm. you have to stay on top of that i mean from an information perspective the tour guides in this valley, if they're doing their jobs and they're doing them right, they you have to stay on top of that piece of it too. Um, you know, and if, if we don't necessarily get to go through a whole entire place's tasting and it's been a little while and my guests are like, I can see like ebbs and flows start to happen sometimes too mm-hmm. with wines and guests liking a place really, really well one month and then the next month they're going, this isn't, they, you know, they don't buy anything. You're like, hmm, well, the experience with the person behind the counter didn't change, so what's going on, you know? So then I'm back in that tasting room tasting the wines to, to find out where they're at, what's going on, and that's an important piece of it, too. And I think, you know, our, the, all of the locations we go to, we have to stay on top of that kind of thing, too. Did you mention, I can't remember if you did, um, We'll, we'll get we'll get especially the smaller places um, uh, places that are less or you know under five thousand cases mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even thousand cases uh, uh, they'll call us just to can you please come out here because our reputation's there can you come out here and try our wines mm-hmm. and see if we'll be a fit mm-hmm. yeah and that's a real important question because we're not a fit with everybody. Um, mm-hmm. We make that determination a lot of times, but it's not so much, and we try their wines, and it's not so much to try their wines because it's free wine, which is great, you know, but it's to understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the one thing that's true, I, I was in the beer business for nine years, so the one thing that's true about a brewery, if you like beer, is because it's so consistent. Um, you, it doesn't, years, there's no vintage in beer. You can create one, but there's no intended vintage in there. Mm-hmm. Um, where you don't have consistency like that in winemaking, but, but you do, I mean, in, in wine. Mm-hmm. But the winemaker definitely is consistent. Yeah. What's, what directions that winemaker want to go? Mm-hmm. And so when people come out there, we've done it many times. We go out there, we try the wine, and um, say out of 10, um, maybe two will stick. Mm-hmm. Because are they doing something that is? It's not. We're not looking for anything that's unique or, or, or like something that's separating them from the others. It's like, um, what, what, um, 
what are you doing here that's going to actually um, uh, make me want to come back? Mm -hmm. um, is it any different? Mm -hmm. yeah. I had one guy in my car once, and I always tell the story that it, it's, he was nobody really that important in life, except his title was general manager for all the wine in the United States for Southern Wine and Spirits. Mm -hmm. Nobody important. And, um, and people are like, sounds important. Well, he just told me something very simply, and I've, I've used this since years ago, he told me this, but he said, I really don't pay attention to tasting notes. I pay attention to if the wines I buy are the ones that um, I will get a second glass of. Mm -hmm. And that's whenever I go to a tasting appointment that somebody wants us to come out here and pair people with it, I ask myself that question. Are any of these wines here something I would get a second glass of if mm -hmm. I'm in a restaurant or anywhere else? And that's my criteria. Right. Um, I'm not a song. <laughs> Far from it. But um, I think the most that I've seen analysis paralysis out in the field where people are just trying to figure out this is a 94 from Wine Spectator. Why don't I like it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a simple question. Do you like it or not? I just don't like I it. I don't. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> yep. And so you can read all the tasting notes you want. Yeah. But if you don't like it, then that's the most important thing. Yeah. And so, you know, it becomes a very personal thing. And, I, th you know, as yeah. we develop into going with people coming out here i tell that to people all the time right it's your palate it's your palate it's your palate it's right. not mine mm -hmm. people ask me what's your favorite wine my favorite wine doesn't matter right i will get you to where your favorite wine is and i think you know our goal at the end of the day i'd say majority of our guests are coming out here because they've had a willamette valley blend of some sort in their marketplace, um, a cuvee from a mix of vineyards all over this area, you know, that they've gotten their hands on somewhere. And then when we get them here and we have the conversations with, uh, with them, we want them to understand what this valley truly is all about. Because it's, it's about the terroir. It's about these little special mountainous regions that we have here. And I can talk about them and I can show them the maps. But until they're truly like in them and seeing them and feeling that atmosphere of that terroir, they don't get it until they're here. Mm -hmm. And right. so I think that's another thing that a lot of these you know, places realize that that's something we're doing is we try and pick locations. If I have a guest that's that demographic of saying we've had Willamette Valley wines from you know, Domaine Serene, the Yamhill Cuvée, or we've had, you know, uh, a Rex Hill or a Stoller or even, a, you know, a Pinarash, something that's a Willamette Valley blend that's out there in that marketplace that they can get on their shelves that's in distribution. But we really have, you know, maybe they've had a special bottle on a wine list as at one of their favorite restaurants that they go to in New York or Chicago or something. Um, they're like, we had this one bottle of Beaufrere, and I'm like, okay, now you're getting more specific. But even Beaufrere has a Willamette Valley blend, you know. So getting them and saying, let's, let's look at, we can pick a day that we can get to the Shehalem Mountains. We can get them to a Ribbon Ridge, a Yamhill Carlton, and a Dundee Hills. We can hit four AVAs in a day, mm -hmm. and within that, for AVAs, we can show them 
wine terroir specific with an estate location. Mm -hmm. We can give them a vertical with a place that might have some verti vertical mm -hmm. type of <clears throat> with their and get them something that has a little bit more age. I can get them to a location that will show them clonal specific bottlings mm -hmm. and then I can even get them to some places that might have different winemakers from the same terroir and how that affects wine. So it's so cool to be able to put that together for a person in one day um, and design, you know, and I have specific places that I can, that I, I know I would go to for those, that kind of a day. Um, and then they let us do that. But, but people are, the winemakers, that relationship piece happens because they know we're doing that educational piece throughout the day with them. And they're asking questions and really learning, okay, I like this, this, this jory soil terroir. That's so cool. To you know, yeah. Or they start to realize, they, they get to the Ribbon Ridge and they have that, that, you know, that marine sedimentary, the Willa Kinsey soils, and they're just like, this is different taste. This tastes so different, you know, and then... <laughs> There's so many other things that go into it, but mm -hmm. it's fun to watch a person throughout the day. And I think uh, the majority of our guests show that that enthusiasm from us when they go into the locations mm -hmm. is part of it too. You try. You, yeah. You got to be careful though. Um, you can't yeah. over saturate people. You can. Information. <laughs> yeah, and you can. Just because our enthusiasm is there yeah. doesn't mean that they need to know every bit of your enthusiasm. Yeah. And because I try to categorize it is number one, and we do it in the initial phase before we even do the itinerary. Um, and in, to some extent, we've done it so much that it's becomes it's second nature to us now mm -hmm. where we go. But once you get on the tour, you get the people in the car now now they're yours you know mm -hmm. and um you know you try to find out the simple little things be, besides chit chat um trying to find out what from my perspective what's your wine experience you know not just going to napa did you what what bottle of wine changed your experience you know and not everybody has the, my story mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um it's something completely different but i think it's important for me and for them to understand where they're going yeah. And because they're going somewhere today, um, I just want them to um, hopefully at the end have a journey mm -hmm. at the end. Mm -hmm. And they want to continue that journey. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then you introduce something like, well, this first stop we're going to is a very, it's a, all the wine that you're going to try today is out the window from that vineyard, mm -hmm. like Linnea State. I mean, perfect example. Mm -hmm. um, they try all these Pinots and Chardonnay, but it all comes from that vineyard. Mm -hmm. That's in the Yamhill Carlton ABA. Um, but it's a very specific part of the Yamhill Carlton ABA. Yeah. And so you can taste things. So that's, for me, gives me a good idea of do they like not just the vineyard, but also the region. Mm -hmm. And then exactly. you, you take that and go to, go to Utopia um, in, in Ribbon Ridge. All the wine, except for his... Um, uh, the, he does source grapes from Southern Oregon for specific wines, but they're not Pinot mm -hmm. and or Chardonnay. And um, you go there and you try the Pinots there. He does a lot of whole clustering stuff, but you 
but not every single one. And you try that, and then you've got two different regions, vineyard-specific and regional-specific. And then you can do the same thing in Dundee Hills. You can yeah. do the same thing with Chehalem Mountains. You can do the same thing with Yamil, or Ayala uh, Amity Hills, McMinnville, and now. Banduzer. Banduzer. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I try to do. And then I watched this. And then I remember one time, um, we were, it was an open house weekend. Um, we're, um, Beacon Hill, the winery there, had a bunch of, uh, um, Drew Boyd was there at one point. Yeah. And um, he did brands for a lot of different wineries. And yeah. So we were, Beacon Hill just opened up their tasting room upstairs. And so the, I can't remember, I think his first name is Mark, but he was the tasting room manager way back when. And he saw me and he goes, do you know anybody that I have a case of wine left, two cases of wine left, and it's a Shehalem Mountain, um, this vineyard, and it just so happened the the guy the guy that I was it was a couple that we had but the guy was he, he liked wine from the Chehala Mountains and I could tell where we were at he's just loving them and then I said I'll be right upstairs and and I went down and I got him and I said I want you to try wine I didn't tell him where it was from or anything else I I just said I need you to try this wine it's it's if you like it you can get a special price on it because he's going to give me a special price for you. And so <laughs> he comes upstairs and he tries the wine and I'm thinking he's going to love this wine because it's Chehala Mountains. And and I don't know if it was Jory soil or Chehala Mountains, a lot of different soil types. But so he, he tasted it and one thing I we both learned is that your body will give away. Your body you language like tells a yeah. lot, yeah. This is the best brown bag scenario I could possibly do. And he tasted it and he goes, he just held the glass. <laughs> and like, you know where this is from? And he goes, no. And he said, Chehalem Mountains. You like it, don't you? And he's like, yes. How much for the case? <laughs> and and um, then I kind of walked away and uh, then, the, then Mark came in and, and talked to him. And as I was just kind of standing there, he just kind of went, good job. <laughs> <laughs> and he went and got his case. And um, but yeah. that's, that's the importance uh, of regionality. Out yeah. here. I've had winemakers tell me that regionality doesn't matter. And I see what their point is, because Willamette Valley matters. Mm -hmm. um, but they're just looking at it from that macro point of view, at the micro side. And I remember one. Um, Tony's assistant Ben, Tony Reinder's assistant Ben. He um, he was talking about Willamette Valley wines with people. He goes, I don't see why the regions make a difference. And then he he didn't really know what we did. And I said, Well, on our tours, we try. We have four. We have four stops in a day. We try to get four different regions if we can. So yeah. because most people have a palate of Willamette Valley. In two days, we'll get seven. Most of the wine. <laughs> we need two days here, at least, though. <laughs> right. Um, but most of the wine that comes out of the Willamette Valley comes from these now seven sub AVAs, mm -hmm. and the majority of that really comes from the Dundee Hills. So um, you're not really getting Willamette Valley necessarily, mm -hmm. because if you get less than ninety percent right now from the Dundee Hills, you have to call it Willamette mm -hmm. Valley. So you can get Ribbon Ridge and Dundee Hills, 50%, you call it Willamette Valley, but they're coming from two specific regions. So 
break that down a little bit and see what you're really liking. And they're all great regions. Mm -hmm. It's just so cool to see people actually gravitate to one. Yeah, it is. And, and then from there we can guide them again. <laughs> then we can talk about... We can guide them for their next visit back, right. or we can make sure for their purchases in the future if they're buying and having it shipped to their locations. But These that, are the wines that you need to like look there. at. We didn't talk about vintage. We didn't talk about yeah. um, clones. <laughs> then there's all of that. <laughs> yeah, there's all of that. Yeah. And microclimates um, and, and doing things like that. Because Cooperage programs. Once they get the region down, now it's a matter of <laughs> do you like cool vintage? Do you like warm vintage? What are you really gravitating to? Mm -hmm. That's that's where their journey is. Mm -hmm. And that we get most people just trying to figure out the regionality of it. Then a journey begins and comes, and then we get people coming back for the third time, and we're, they're still on the journey. Mm -hmm. And that's what's exciting for me is that we're tour guides, just we're bringing people on a lifelong process, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's wine. So there's the yeah. answer to why wine, right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell me about how you've seen the industry, especially locally, since you're so you're valley-based. Have you seen the industry change since you've been aware of it, since you've been a part of it, especially? And also alongside that, how you've seen the tour industry change and grow as you've been a part of it? A lot of changes in the tour industry, Jeez, for sure. What was the first um, part? I mean, <laughs> just sort of how the wine industry has grown and changed, and then how the tour industry has grown and changed as, as, right. as a result. Yeah, I mean, well, this is a story I tell to my guests on a daily basis, you know, when they get in the car, we talk about what is an AVA and what, you know, the Willamette Valley, mm -hmm. you know. So we have AVAs are American viticultural areas and our first vines were only plant, you know, were planted in 1965 here in the Willamette Valley. In yeah. the valley with um, you know, David Lett and the Irie Vineyards okay. and 1984 is when it was established as an AVA. So that's almost 20 years time frame that it took for this valley to kind of get into motion for that AVA structure to start taking place. Yeah. And, um, you know, when, when they started, it was just those five founding fathers mm -hmm. that we had, you know, wineries that there was, you know, more vineyards than that, but founding fathers and wineries that got those things going to get it to be called an AVA. Mm -hmm. And, that's and an interesting history, that's for sure. Yeah. And our family's vineyard was planted in 1989. So July late, 4th. Yep, July 4th, 1989 is when they, we've got pictures of them out there. <laughs> and it, it was, you know, that's 10 years before I even came into the family. So yeah. I didn't, didn't know them back then when they first planted it. But um, I'm happy I'm here now. Yes. <laughs> but I think in 89, there was less than a hundred mm -hmm. still, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, so... And there were no regions besides Willamette Valley. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Then you see... A, well, sorry. Ribbon Ridge was still Willamette Valley. When you when you look at, like... Um, well, the smaller sub-AVAs didn't become... until 2005 and six. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so yeah, yeah you look at that, that's four, only five, like... Six. That's fifth, 14, 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah, so... That progression really is is young. Well, just think of the Dundee Hill. Then you look at five founding fathers and the you know with '65 being the first plantings, and then the early '70s with those guys establishing, or you know '72, '73 are when we still talk about 
there are some unrooted vineyards around this locate area that are still you know surviving with the phylloxera virus it's still being here but then less than a hundred when you or so in that area 89 when we our family first planted and then you jump into the I th I feel like I've seen a just looking at the history myself I feel like there was like 10-year surges <laughs> yeah, every where where you've yeah. got early 90s 2000, 2010 then you have yeah then you have the 2000 group of people that jumped in got in once those AVAs were really established I think you saw yeah. that insurgence right mm -hmm. there um, mm -hmm. and then uh, now here we are 2019 and we're over 500 wineries and 700 plus vineyards mm -hmm. in the valley mm -hmm. so when you when we talk to our guests about that I'm like those that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's gigantic vineyards like you see in Napa you know you don't have thousands and thousands of acres lined up down a highway you know our geography won't ever allow that um, so some of those vineyards when you hear that number means they could be five acre vineyards you know they're small yeah they're Oregon's still going to be 20, boutique 15, 10, acres. yeah yeah exactly um, and then you you know for winery labels that doesn't necessarily mean um, it's you know, there, it's a winemaker that's out there that has this passion to do these wines, and they're sourcing from those vineyards, um, and they may only be doing 500 cases, 600 cases, you know, or less mm -hmm. for that matter. They may source, but if it's a commercially produced label, it's in that number. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you you had this group of farmers. You know, looking at our family's history and some of, just knowing the Ribbon Ridge as well as we do, um, Ed and Darlene at Araminta Cellars, I love talking to them. But you know, they were, they started out as cherry orchards and hazelnut orchards. Cattle ranchers. And then they were a Angus cattle farm. And, and then, you know, the, the Angus cattle thing wasn't giving them the deferments they needed, so they went into, right. you know, a long-term... They decided to do a long-term agreement with uh, Archery Archer's Summit, Summit and they planted 20 acres of grapes. And that wasn't, you know, that was that. in 1999, 2000, when they did that. So, you know, they were farmers right. before that have changed their, now that these AVAs have taken shape and they've transferred over, or ranchers that might have been in those little AVAs have sold those farms to vineyard owners now. and. Yeah, there's a lot of stories of, I know. of, of where um, everybody came from because um, if you look at, uh, well, when we live in Colorado, live out here, you, you see a lot of people from California. And um, the one thing that, well, I tell people, so where did you, did you grow up out here? I said, no, I'm in the wine industry, therefore I didn't come from Oregon. <laughs> um, and I'm from Washington State. But Washington State, same way. There's a lot of California there. Um, and uh, I, I always refer to Dan Warrensheis, but um, he, he literally tells the story of, I, uh, I, uh, I looked at a magazine one day and um, said that Oregon's where it's at. And he was in California. He had a thriving business down there selling wine, making wine, but he always wanted to be a vineyard owner and um, a winemaker there. 
And he says, that dream left me a long time ago in California. Yeah. And a lot of these winemakers up here, they're, they, there's no way they could do it in California. Mm -hmm. They did it here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you see a lot of people in the high-tech industry afforded it to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, they cashed in their chips and bought land, became farmers. Um, and uh, they're, you know, they're making great wine now. Yeah. Um, and or the grapes are, and uh, um, that's that's where um, I've seen. That's probably the change from like you're called the founding fathers, the original people that are out here. Um, I, the first time I, they they um, they established these these vineyards in the Willamette Valley, and then as people could, um, no one no one gave them much credit credit at the time and they right. were doing things that I mean the Ponzi's I mean no one knew what they were doing out here well they planted down on they, unelevated flatland <laughs> I mean, you know they knew what they were but doing the, they, had a, they had a vision right nobody else gave them any credit I, I, but but let Louisa will sit there and say she goes my parents didn't know any better we didn't have the data mm -hmm. they only had a few clones that were brought over from Burgundy to start with um, that were approved to be planted. So there was this this transition that had to happen of learning our growing in agriculture with these clones from France. How are they going to work here? And then our soil is so diverse. I mean, we have, you know, I always try and keep it general with the categories because it's way too intricate for most people to take in. But we, we keep it to the windblown loess, to volcanic soils, jory being our state soil, and marine sedimentary soils. Um, to keep it just for people to understand it. And then you can dive into that a thousand times deeper. But, but to, to see how it's grown, you know, you've had to take on years of these farmers understanding that piece of it, mm -hmm. what clones grow in the white, right soils at the right elevations, at the right facings right. of the vineyards, right? right. And, and then now we have a lot more clonal diversity that's been brought specific. over I mean, that are specific for the, and they're really figuring that thing out. So you've, you're seeing- doing clones of the, the rootstock grafted on right the, you know, so that like, is a huge totally change from then to now yeah. <laughs> yeah. they just winging it back then right now it's very scientific very driven that way and, and now you, yeah but you also have all of these winemakers that have come in and I can't even say I've tasted a quarter of them of you know we deal with vineyard owners and tasting rooms that are at locations at their terroir spot mm -hmm. But there are so many wines that are being made out there um, that are in distribution. I'll, I know when I've had a call from a guest that says, I had da-da-da-da-da wine and I've never heard of it. I'm like, okay, they're either way down south by Eugene or it's or a tiny that. little guy that got his no. wine into a distribution market and he makes a few hundred cases and it's not even a tasting room that's available here. Mm -hmm. We can't even get those wines here. And I'm like, how does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You can't even make an appointment. I'm like, I want to try that wine now, you yeah. know? <laughs> and I can't even find, I can't even find their phone number on a website sometimes. I'm like, hmm. We deal with a lot of percentages <laughs> out here and I think a lot of the, uh, um, 
the misconception is that you can get any wine you want where yeah it's like people want bubbly and stuff like that it's like yeah people do it but they only make mm -hmm. 20 cases mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. they're not going to open it up you know you can um, go buy the bottle and it. then they'll open it maybe uh, but <laughs> maybe not 20 cases. they can but, do more of that but yeah the, the reality out here is uh 75 percent of all oregon wine is is thousand cases or less i mean it's they're not talking about huge numbers here and so you can you can count on your hands how many actually are above fifteen thousand cases mm -hmm. and, We're pretty close to it yeah maybe, yeah maybe and um three hands and, yeah well maybe. but um but the the right. numbers of go really down what you see out in the marketplace outside of Oregon are these places that can sustain that kind of distribution. Mm -hmm. It's just a handful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that mean they're getting the best out here? Maybe. But to say that those that can distribute outside of Oregon and get their name out there are the best, that's a stretch to me. And there's so much good winemaking going on in here. So when somebody gets written up and they, they literally make 500 cases of wine a year, and they're not in distribution, but they got a 97 um, yeah. uh, from Wine Spectator. 94, doesn't matter. 92, doesn't matter. They, they are getting recognized. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we can't even get them. If you get a 97, no one's ever going to get that. But it <laughs> yeah. uh, doesn't matter who makes it. But that um, 100 that Patty Green got. All. Yeah. Nobody's going to taste that one. <laughs> um, but when you look at the sheer number of volume of grape juice compared to California and Washington State, Oregon is very small. And Oregon makes 1% of all the wine in the United States, 1%, and they get 25 to 30% of all the awards. <laughs> There's a lot of great winemaking going on yeah, in the state. Yeah, there is. And, there, and it, it is not falling just in a handful of locations. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, I, I can't. I can't emphasize this enough, the assistant winemaking out here, the people that are actually doing the bulk of the work is incredible. Yeah. And those guys and ladies, whatever you want to call them, the cellar masters that are out there cellar really hands. doing this, they are absolutely um, doing some great stuff. They're making the wine head winemaker look really, really good. But that head winemaker hired them. Right. And, you know, that, that's why I look at, like, Tony Reinders. And you look at all the great winemakers that are out here now. He hired when he was starting at Domain Serene. Right. And they're doing their own thing now. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about Tony is that he knows them all. Right. He remembers them, and, but he doesn't look at that. He's doing his own thing. Mm -hmm. um, and he's got a great assistant now. And, uh, and more, you know. It's amazing the the lineage of great winemaking out here that's produced more great winemaking. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And it's just an incredible area. So for us to get a phone call from somebody who only makes 400 cases of wine, I'm really interested. Yeah. And um, I remember, I think it was Bjornsson Vineyard, they had, they sold, they sell their grapes too. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Jerry down there uh, gave me a bottle from one of the, I can't remember the name of the winery right now, but somewhere in, made in Beaverton. It was, yeah, just over, yeah, on the Hillsborough, be Beaverton of side route, of Chehala Mountains. Yeah, and um, it blew me away. It was awesome. And then I looked at who yeah. made it, 
it was their son. He's in his 20s. And there's some lineage that's happening here. And, and there's a lot of youth out here that are understanding this. The mm-hmm. best youth I can think of, and I'm really excited, is Granville Wines. Uh, Jackson Holstein. Mm-hmm. Jackson Holstein, yeah. his wife, Ayla. And, and Al Holstein was like, he wrote the book on vineyard management out here. So um, uh, he had... He didn't have any shoes really to fill. He was already in the shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, Jackson talks about being, um, his crib was the tractor in the vineyard. And um, that that's a story I i can never have. I oh, know. You know, and, and when we go to Jackson, he, he's one of those guys that calls up, can we can we be a fit in your wine tours? I'm like, um, well, let's try your wine. And let's hear your story. And... Jackson, has, he sent me text after a tasting. He's like, sorry about if I talk too long about the story. And I'm like, oh, that, I totally understand that. But uh, when I go to the tasting, and um, I'll just let you know that uh, I'll ask questions to make sure you're telling your story. <laughs> because that is not just showcasing your wine. You are what's in that bottle of wine. Yeah. You really are. And it's what sells the wine. Nine times out of ten, our guests are just, they're, they're humbled by these stories of these winemakers in these locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a big change in the valley from being, that's another change in the valley, yeah. from being recognized as, well, we've been here so long, respect us, um, to we haven't been here that long, um, please respect us. <laughs> <laughs> and... and yeah, um, they. We get people. I think another another way of looking at it is that people um, ask us or tell us we we want to have one high end place, and then and it's like, and I'll get them in the car and I'll talk to them about what I think high end. What does high end mean? Because that's a broad. If high end spectrum. means that they're, they're <laughs> they have a manor on the hill and yeah. and you're paying a high price for a bottle of wine. But that's that's one definition of high end. But um, if I'm asking, if you're a winemaker in the Willamette Valley and you're not a high end winemaker, what are you doing out here? And yeah. that's the reason why it's so good. Mm-hmm. There's no low end wine. There's nobody I know saying, "Well, I'm only making wine to go to the middle of the road." Mm-hmm. There's a there's an audience out there for that. Yeah, it's called the bottom shelf in the Safeway store. Mm-hmm. They've already got that covered. <laughs> You don't need to be there, and no. you you know the ones that are that are, like I said, out of ten, two will go to. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're not good, mm-hmm. but what are are they? What's their focus, mm-hmm. and why are what are they doing to make them relevant? You know, yeah. and I think there's a big push out here with youth, with enthusiasm, with technology, and everything else that. Willamette Valley is going to be relevant for a long, long time because the mm-hmm. winemaking out here is so good. Yeah, but that also brings up a point that as you come into this marketplace, if you're a newer winemaker, there's no place to make mistakes anymore either. Because as this grows and grows, the, the, the ones that are not showing up to the level of what this valley has produced thus far and will probably and will continue to produce you can't just I feel like you can't just walk in and just say I'm gonna start making wine Mm -hmm. 
like maybe an Araminta did 20, 30 years <laughs> ago. <laughs> you know, they ca you can't just start doing that and, and expect to not have some definitely like some ups and downs um, unless you got some background, I would say, because there they're, they're, have been some we have tasted that are newer and I'm like, ooh, I don't know about this one. Well, I think too, you look <laughs> you at... Gotta be, you've got competition as far as the quality goes. When, when we first started a touring company, um, the only education out here was Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And now you have Linfield, and that's a mm -hmm. huge splash. Mm -hmm. um, and the focus is to hopefully keep people here. Um, but I think, especially in the uh, 80s and 90s, there was no focus on education. And right. the level of education out reflects the economy too. It's a very strong economy out here. It has been for a long time. People work here, they make a living wage here, they spend the money here. It keeps everything flowing. And you can look at the level of education of people even working in the field. And um, you need people that have a, a, a good grasp of numbers, even working in the field as a vineyard manager. Mm -hmm. They gotta have, they gotta, they have to be able to have the aptitude to go into sciences. Mm -hmm. You know, chemistry or biology, um, things like that. And so, they are driving this industry. Yeah. But you have to have something locally that is helping them drive that industry. And that's where, like, the Evanstat saw that need. Mm -hmm. And coming in here and, and doing that in Linfield, you know, that was... Um, and the Ponzi's been doing that for a long time. On mm -hmm. the philanthropic side, they did it on the facility side mm -hmm. with Carlton Winemaker Studio. Yeah. Um, so just by that was bringing people. Well, then you've got, like... Uh Bethel Heights, um, Castiles, and you have Joe Dobbs. They've developed the trucks, and now with the the truck that now does all of this champagne, the sparkling wine, the degorgement. Yeah. Ah, it's awesome. I mean, those are all things that have, like, made winemaking easier for the little small guy throughout this area too. So there's these developments in technology and how we can do our bottlings and do our labeling and move the wine from marketplace to marketplace too that's really changed um, yeah. for the need of what this specific varietal these you know these cool climate varietals the Chardonnays and What's the, the reasons and touring companies um, so yeah with tourism I, I feel like you know there's there's two there's a you know there's two different ways to look at it. You have tourism that's like based out of Portland. Mm -hmm. You have limousine companies and driving services. So they get lumped into that. And that's not obviously us. <laughs> um, I can tell when somebody calls me up and they're like, what kind of car do you have? And I'm like, are you looking for a limousine and a driver? Or do you want somebody that's going to educate you? And they're like, well, we just want a driver for the day. And I'm like, I'll dive into the questions of what is their day entailing, but if it's that bachelorette party that is just out to be driven to a, to the a 99W drag, yeah. um, there's a service for that, and we aren't always the right fit. <laughs> and uh, and I'm not a limo. We are not a limo service um, for that for that reason, but. Um, that's where you know that's a big big difference where 
when we jumped into this seven years ago and I said, this is what I want out of my day, there's a handful of us that do tours the way we do, that have this specific passion for the wines themselves, mm -hmm. ourselves, mm -hmm. as well um, as being able to educate the people of this area to give them the passion that we have for it in a day, um, give them that true experience with the places we pick versus that driving service. So we are seeing more and more transportation companies mm -hmm. kind of come into the marketplace for sure, mm -hmm. um, which are just those driving services. Mm -hmm. But I start, I hear, and every single year, and even when we first started, we kind of got told, we'll see if you make it kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Yeah. You know, there's, like you know, it's a business one, we're small. So luckily we had a background that was conducive to starting this business. I understood what, you know, my articles of incorporation needed to be. I understood marketing understood and a website. I, I did, I understood the business side of it. And, and Mark has a, you know, a big sales background and for that matter, being in a restaurant, it's all about sales. Everything you do is about sales mm -hmm. and selling yourself as well as selling, you know, the products around you. But, um, I, you know, I think the another thing too is, um, and I and I've tried to get people aware. I try to take notice of it, but um, I think in the old school of thinking is that they didn't need us touring mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. um, not as much as they gave credit. But then you look at the numbers of what we bring, and. Um, what we bring to places, mm -hmm. literally, is brand new business. Mm -hmm. And when you say in a six month period and you visit a place um, uh, 20 times in a month, and then you're in that 20 times, 15 of them did club memberships, or they and they bought more. Mm -hmm. Maybe some didn't buy any. But yeah. but when you look at that number, if we didn't bring those 20 to you, that's just take that number away 20 times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you keep repeating that, that's a huge amount of money for those locations. Mm -hmm. So that would have um, maybe never found those people because we, you know, they would have never they were off the grid, you know, mm -hmm. and we brought them to that grid. So when you, um, when you, if you took away touring companies, let's say, and you had them just do it on their own with people driving out here, it would be significantly different. Mm -hmm. I am implying it would be significantly different. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, but I think the value between the relationship between the touring company and the locations has gotten better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think they're. The, the one thing that um, comes with that is the touring companies that are coming in now aren't realizing that they're a steward of those people too. Mm -hmm. So they're not, so when they're going into a location, they're leaving it just like the old adages that mom and dad told you is that um, if you're going someplace, leave it cleaner than when you left, when you leave, leave it cleaner when you got there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of tour, I, I think the tour companies that are getting it are doing a great job. They do that, they yeah. They do that. 
but when you bring in more, they're getting it's kind of a riffraff feel. And, well, and, and that's the difference between a, a trans transportation right. tourism company versus we're a small breed uh, of group of people that do it the way we do it. Yeah. Um, and that's, I, I, I think all of us that do do the tours the way we do, that have the, the knowledge and background that we do, um, we all work really well together mm -hmm. and we you know, if we're full, we know we'll push them to the right people mm -hmm. to make sure that this guest is getting the right ones. Um, so I think as the valley as a whole, as it's growing, we're going to see more and more of these transportation companies just be drivers out here. Mm -hmm. But from an experience, I, for us, we're, again, it's, I don't know that that's going to grow as much. Mm -hmm. And for us as a small company, I'm particular, obviously, in if I'm going to have, we've had a hired driver um, the last three years now. Mm -hmm. um, for two of the years, it was our, it was Matt Driscoll from Wild Air, his sister, and, and she was fantastic because um, she worked with her brother and she understood the and whole winemaking. Yeah, she was interested <laughs> and she had the same passion as we did and we felt that and that's why we had her working with us. Um, and then this last summer, a good friend of mine who's been uh, in this area for years, she lived in Sherwood, so she was very close by and has always had a passion for the wine. Um, and she happens to be that very first tour we took out when we first started this <laughs> business. <true. laughs> um, so she, she went, her and her husband uh, went into retirement this last year. So, you know, we only have a place to have a higher driver really in the summertime. Mm -hmm. the, the seasonality of the business doesn't allow for, um, and I, the other thing we've never really done, we have to really look at our particular story. These, those first three or four years and even five years, I mean, with the, the trauma and loss of our daughter was it's been a journey mm -hmm. to just get to where we are and for the longest time I was like I don't want to take this on as me being that manager of a business I love driving people I still have to do that piece of it but I can manage that piece as well as being a guide out there mm -hmm. and so I look at if we were to expand and I start hiring extra drivers, I have to have that mm -hmm. training in place and know that these people that are doing the what we have developed Cellar Door Wine Tours to be, mm -hmm. to be giving that same experience as Mark and I. And that's always a really hard thing when you're a business owner. So, cause there's a reason we have the passion for it, but does every person we hire underneath us have that same passion? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. there's a fine line for us to kind of like, we've really just kept it slaw, s small. And right now our brother-in-law, uh, Chuck, Chuck, who's one of the North Block owner of the vineyard. <laughs> he just retired from his job. Um, and, you know, as he helps Patricia with some of the vineyard management stuff, he's, he's going to maybe drive for us a, a few times here or there. Awesome. So um, that is super cool for us to keep this more family and to be able to say to our guests, hey, you're going to have a vineyard owner driving you today. So 
No worries there. <laughs> yeah. He actually told me that he wanted to work for us. So yeah, was, we're pretty excited. Nice. I think he's like looked at what we've done over the course of this time frame, and he's been the, the family at the vineyard has been extremely impressed with what we've done on our side of things too, mm -hmm. and we've all supported each other through it. So yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I don't see it's, it's a small valley. I mean, it's a small production. I don't see like. A, a, a tour company like Platypus Tours that's down in the Bay Area yeah. that has all these cars and coming out here and, and doing a tour like that. Um, I think it's going to be more specialized and focused because we've come to that point of scaling and what do we do and um, if we yeah. if we want to take over this valley it's either go big or just stay where we're at. Right and, and we would maybe need an investor if yeah, we went that yeah. direction at and least to get us started off but it's just do we want that to make that decision right. or not? And at this point, we love what we're doing, the way we're doing it, and it's working great for us. Mm -hmm. And hey, why not be the one that's um, sought after? <laughs> right. Just like these little hidden gyms are around mm -hmm. these the valley. <laughs> the one thing I will, yeah. um, one of my tours, um, again, he was nobody important. Um, he was in charge of all the ammunition and everything in the Pacific Fleet, and the, you know. Um, it, we were struggling whether or not we wanted to hire an employee, and and he goes, from my experience, he, he's one of those guys that's just like, um, but he did. I learned two things. One, um, ask if you want his advice. You know, mm -hmm. so I ask people if they want my advice first. Give it. Mm -hmm. and he goes, you want my, you want some advice? Except and I when said, it's sure. me. Sure. <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, um, and then I said, sure. And he says, you win with people because he has to rely on these people all the time. Yeah. And that's, he says, take it or leave it, but if you want to grow your business, you win with people. And that was enough for me. I mean, that was, yeah. and we hired Ann, and it it was, it, for me, it was it's like, uh, and then she did a great job. And she took the reins, and, and it, there was a transition, but you know, she developed into making her own decisions because that was a big thing for us. Yeah. They could actually we, not call us. We and want. Make a choice to change the itinerary. Mm -hmm. Right. We based wanted on your them. Knowledge and your experience. I mean, she would always be really good about going, well, Helen and Mark really listened to what you said and develop this to be the way you want it. But at the same time, I'm like, Anne, if you see them going uh, a totally different direction with the wines that they've. You know that they're tasting and they're not liking something go the other direction you know these wineries you know, like empower her yeah. to take mm -hmm. and and be confident in her skills um knowing the wines and that she's been you know working with and, and then it got really annoying yeah. because i was wondering if i was ever going to get another trip advisor review because <laughs> ann was hogging it all <laughs> helen would hog it all i'm like it's funny how those come in. Sometimes they like come in bulk with one person, one right after another. And it's like, why didn't he get reviewed for his tour that day? <laughs> Who knows? And that, that's another change in the, yeah. in the valley is um, mm. uh, how, uh, and it's probably true with wineries, but I think with tour companies is... Yeah, trip advisors. ...is getting reviewed and, um, yeah. and making sure um, your reviews are good. Mm -hmm. and. Um, <laughs> what you do to ensure the good reviews are. And I think that keeps our level of, of, uh, of service high. Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. um, because that's that's employees. You know, they can make they, they can just get a paycheck. <laughs> but uh, reviews from when we first started to now are you have to have good reviews. Mm -hmm. Well, and we always have, but yeah. But that's, that's, that's when you great. love what you do and you're passionate about it and it shows in in what you're giving every day you have nothing to worry about <laughs> that's the way I look at it <laughs> yeah I don't know if there's any other real changes yeah um, I, I just I think it's going to be small I mean for us it's different because we are that small unique little group and that little small unique group for us isn't is always going to be there and it's never going to fall into a competition category with those transportation companies. No. No. So the only no, thing I can see is like I look at what those companies charge and then I look at what I'm doing and the information and guidance that I'm giving and I'm like I should be charging double yeah. <laughs> because they're getting double than just that driving service. Um, that's the hard part for us is that because we're small it is a small group of clientele in the whole demographic of what comes out here um, that is looking for somebody like us and well I think the reviews are corresponding with the value they're getting so well that's part yeah but but at the same time when you have a driving service that's charging the same amount and in a lot of, and we give a lunch with ours um, unless they want to do a tasting paired tasting experience mm -hmm. we provide lunches through Red Hills Market out of Dundee and make sure that their picnic is at a winery at, at a location so we're not being pulled into a town because really the vineyards are in the country mm -hmm. and and we show them the back roads. We get them into driveways they would never find and, and be able to experience and sit down and have that fun day yeah, this is a with what we're giving them. And, and breaking mm -hmm. up for lunch on a Saturday in July or August is, you could take two yeah. hours out of your day. Yeah, to go into those restaurants. So it's and better served getting it and just bringing it out there and enjoying yeah. the place you're in. Yeah, sure. sure. Keep it moving. It's been successful for us. And, yeah. and I don't see us changing that anytime sure. soon. Yeah. But we're flexible with what the clientele wants. Yeah. So. Yeah. We're established. So yeah. Well, excellent. Well, that's all the questions I have. You actually answered almost all my questions at me. I haven't asked them, which is great. Thank you. <laughs> is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I mean, that's our story in a nutshell. <laughs> um, yeah. You didn't it's ask us about our dogs and how they're... Oh, no, the Ugly Green Cup. Oh, the Ugly Green, green Cup. I thought about the Ugly Green Cup. So tell us about... Well, let's finish with the Ugly Green Cup. Okay. okay. Well, um, I think it was Lene where I, I didn't bring my prop and I have a plastic Ugly Green Cup. Go to Instagram. <laughs> you and, can find um, it. <laughs> I think it was... I think it was Lene. Um, anyway, um, who's, who's at Lene? Eric? Eric. Eric. Sorry, Eric. Um, uh, I think he texted me and he said, get this ugly green cup out of here. He left it. And so I went back and I think it was the next day and I got it. And, um, but I've drinking a lot of water. So, uh, I, you know, as tour guides, we're drinking yeah, water yeah, instead yeah, of wine <laughs> during so the I was, day. I, I had this cup and I was like, this cup has been left at so many locations. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's got its own story. And um, I'm just going to do an Instagram post on it, on our Facebook, our, our Instagram, uh, Selador, uh, uh Instagram page. Yeah. And um, I just started posting the Ugly Green Cup originally um, at a location. Now guess where he's at. <laughs> It's and yeah, I need like blur the background yeah. so it was like a distinctive piece of that vineyard maybe, like but but blurred <laughs> so it was kind of harder to tell. And so that wasn't yeah. But the cup looked really good in this picture, and and people and I started getting this following. It's like it's incredible how it just took off. Mm -hmm. And um, then I started his own Instagram page, which hasn't taken off as much as on on our cellar door <laughs> page. Right. But um, it will eventually. Um, but uh, then I started getting these guesses in from like the winemaker mm -hmm. and the or the tasting room associates saying, this and looks stuff like just that. like my place and I say nope you're wrong so I thought maybe it's not a good idea because if I get people guessing that are important in Syria and they're guessing wrong and it's not they think it's their place we had one that kind of told us that he goes I was afraid to actually comment because yeah. I started to realize maybe I don't know as much as I thought <laughs> right. I did. <laughs> so my, I think my intention was good, but it kind of backfired. But it got this cup out here that suddenly I had people outside the industry just following. It. <laughs> That's what Instagram does, and it's just weird to me, actually. But um, but uh, it's still going. So now it visits all the vineyards and locations we go to, and. And yeah. our guests are, so, and our guests are, I mean, it's really actually increased our following, like, it's, expo I, I, it's not, not exponential, exponential yet, but I mean, it's, it's increasing it's faster than it definitely was. So it's given people a reason. And that's something with social media you have to find nowadays um, with any of your marketing that you do for any of your business. So, and you have to be diligent in posting, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or if you're going to do Twitters or whatever. So we, we really stick to just Instagram and Facebook for our stuff and keep it so simple. So there's but this guy that is a, he's a Instagrammer, but he's called the West Coast Wine Guy. Mm -hmm. And he follows me. I actually followed him and I met him the other day. And he's never had his face in Instagram. So um, he looked at my ugly green cup and he thought this was really cool because it's kind of like what he does, but the ugly green, he's, I don't, you don't see my face in it either. So it's kind of like, this is a real good idea. And um, instead of just holding up the, so up my, you know, my ugly green cup might just be winding up next to the wine bottle and, and talking about the location mm -hmm. we're at, as opposed to me saying it's something true. about it. It's your avatar. Yeah, right. exactly. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's, so the, maybe my life, my avatar wouldn't be. Well, the ugly green <laughs> cup is going to go on cup, a vacation. But, so we'll be, it, it's going to yeah. fall. We'll, we will definitely keep it going while we're on vacation. It's, been a crater lake. it's going to Bahamas and so, to Florida. Going international. <laughs> right. We'll see what happens. It'll get to go to Germany and Burgundy next June. Yeah. We're, we're going to get to go on a trip. I'll Our nieces. Our niece is getting married Baden -baden. Yeah, in June, at the end of June, so we're going to definitely um, make our first trip to Bone exciting. this next yeah. spring and do a little wine research while we're there. So that'll <laughs> be even more fun and more for us to like our, you know, give our informational <laughs> arsenal in our heads to people. <laughs> and hopefully we can uh, make some connections. Ugly, hashtag ugly green cup. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> well, thank you both 
so much for yes. joining us today for telling your yes, story, answering, our, answering our, our very few questions here. Uh, <laughs> and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.